This is the Doctor Who Podcast, and you are most welcome. This week on the Doctor What Pop Chart, we review Slime and the Blarney, uh, Time and the Ronnie. You know, the one with the three-eyed tea trays and where the villain's lair has wheelchair access. It's the first seventh dentist story, and watching it is like having your teeth pulled. And why is Sylvester wearing a wig? Oh well, hair today and gone tomorrow. Now where are my forks? Joined in the camp van this week by Michelle. Hello, Michelle. Hey, Ian. And Tony. Hello, Ian. Hello, Michelle. It's great to be back. I, I don't think the words B-team apply to this podcast at all. <laughs> no, I was having the same thought earlier. Not, 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 none whatsoever, no. <laughs> you shouldn't think of yourselves that way. Us in the A-team totally value your contributions. Honestly. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you put yourself in the B-team with me then, uh, Ian. No, he didn't. He just... He... <laughs> You missed that entirely. Finish Ronnie. Oh, Mel is much. You told me. No, Mel. I am Mel. Who's the Ronnie? Try looking in the mirror, the face of evil. I've had enough of this drivel. All right, a compromise. Let me feel your pulse. Don't touch me. Ah, the proof of the pumpkins in the squeezing. You don't even talk like the doctor, you miserable fraud. Let me feel your pulse. Pulses, I should say, two of them, one for each heart. You're a raving lunatic. Yes, perhaps I am, because of you're the Rani I'm dicing with destruction. And if I'm Mel... Mel, the worst she'll do is give me carrot juice. Before we crack on, does anyone want to vote for a yes, this is my favourite story? Hear that silence. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, as in the favourite story in all of Doctor Who ever. Yeah, that that's not going to get many votes, I don't think, unfortunately. Does it have any redeeming features? It does have some redeeming features, definitely. I mean, it's I'm I love Doctor Who. I'm a big fan, and I tried to find something in every story to love. This is a difficult story to love for a number of reasons, but there are some good things in there. Um, I think the sets aren't all bad particularly the Rani's layer and the gantries and stuff work quite well. You know, you have to view it in the context of what the show was going through at the time. You know, it was almost not going to get made at all. And as Tom famously says very often, you know, bad Doctor Who is even better than no Doctor Who whatsoever. So yeah, there are some good things here. The makeup's pretty good. And I think Kate O'Mara is very, very strong as the Rani. I think she gives it a a very big, but very bold and confident uh, performance. I think there's a couple of ways you can look at this story. I mean, the traditional way is to look at it in the pantheon of Who, and it struggles. There is a fair point to be made about the time it was made. What was available to the production team, the whole atmosphere it was being made in. And a lot of the criticisms that are made, you could say, well, they did the best they could with what they had available to them. I mean, the most obvious one, I mean, might as well get this out of the way early on, given the subject of the series we're doing, is the regeneration. Where we put Sylvan in a wig and have a bit of computer effects to blow up the TARDIS randomly. And then he just kind of rolls over and regenerates. Often ridiculed in fandom, and with good reason. And I think it's a pretty uncontroversial statement that it was the worst regeneration the Doctor's ever had. On the other hand, what were they going to do? Colin was not coming back, and you can't really blame him for that after what they did to him. They've got to do something, and actually when you watch it, I think given the constraints they were under, it's not terrible. I'm sure they could have found somebody who was actually slightly more physically like Colin to stand at the console. They could have shot him from behind, played in a little bit of a clip of Colin's audio from a previous story, um, and then there's a big explosion and he falls over in a much more dramatic way. Just to have him lying on the floor... Um, and rolled over with a swirl on his face. I mean, 
it's it's totally anticlimactic. The the only drama in that whole sequence is the fact that an exercise bike falls over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it it is a terribly dismal way to start this. I I'm always fascinated by the idea that Doctor Who, when it casts a new lead actor often starts with a story where they are not acting properly, where they're, where the doctor's acting erratically, he's not himself, he's often pretty harsh and, and abrasive, and, and thankfully the seventh doctor doesn't start out quite that way. But I, I in rewatching it this time, I had the strong impression that a lot of the worst things about this story are in the first episode. And if you could just skip to episode two and go from then on, it's actually a much more enjoyable and a much easier watch. But, but so much, I mean, starting with the regeneration and the... T- terrible computer graphics. And, and the thing that most fails on the regeneration for me is the wig, because you can so clearly see the wig line between Sylvester's face and hair and the actual wig. I mean, with as, as wonderful a job as they did on some of the makeup later on, you, you'd think they could have gotten that moment a little bit better. But uh, yeah, no, you move in from there to the first episode and, and the Pratt Falls, and uh, there's just a lot of things that happen in that first episode that will start you off for this new doctor on completely the wrong foot, which is a shame because he improves not only in his tenure, but also by episode two. I'm not sure I'd be so generous as to limit the damage to just the first episode. Out of the frying pan into the mire. (laughs) I think it was a pretty poor story for quite a bit of its runtime. And not just in terms of production values, and production values are pretty bad, but also in terms of the general plot, as not a lot happens of the first two to two and a half episodes. The story doesn't really kick in until the third episode when you finally understand what it is that Ronnie's doing, what on earth all this strange matter stuff means, and the whole plot to blow things up and create a time manipulator. And actually, as a story, that bit, it's okay. It's not bad. It's a fairly classic Doctor Who plot. The Ronnie's got a decent motivation, a decent idea. You know, it's better than some of the harebrained schemes the Masters come up with. It's okay. Yes, the whole thing feels very low risk, low stakes. I mean... I found all the sequences in the centre of leisure, you know, the dramatically um, <laughs> named leisure centre that they have, they're totally um, inconsequential. I mean, the periods of jeopardy are very easily got out of, you know, shoving the Rani over a bench, shoving the Rani into a cubicle, which she then patiently waits for the door to close in front of her, um, rather than trying to get out. I mean, the, the whole thing is just too easy to get out of. I don't care enough about the Lacursians that they might actually get hurt by what's going on in all this because the threat doesn't seem to be very real. Oh, I'll disagree with you on the Lacursians. Actually, one of my very favourite things about this episode is the Lacursians. I love them as a race. I like the original concept of having a race that had become lazy because life was so easy for them and that they had to maybe recall or or be inspired to, to... defend themselves. Um, I I watched some of the extras this time around, which I'd never done, and evidently Pip and Jane Baker, the writers, had envisioned a very lush planet where food and everything was was easily there for the taking and, and were rather disappointed with finding themselves in another quarry, which doesn't make as much sense for the for the race that they had designed. But but I really found them fascinating. They are an alien race that seems genuinely alien to me. I mean, not. I, I think the makeup was great, and and I love I love their look. I love the hair, and and but little things like the way when they run, they hold their hands kind of straight out behind them in in a very non-human way, or or the idea that when their kind are killed. Their tradition for death appears to not involve, you know, collecting the body and burial the way we think of it. The Ronnie makes fun of that, but I, I find it a nice little kind of alien twist. Um, 
I thought one of the best things about the story is the Lacertian characters and, and some of the greatest acting. I mean, I love the, the bit when um, when the mother finds that her daughter is the one that was blown up and, and, and the tears that she has. I, I, nice little moment. For me, it was slightly undermined by the fact that they look like they're in a Kajagoogoo pop video. <laughs> I suppose we have to be fair. If we start picking holes in who for being dated and of its time, we won't have a lot left to talk about on the podcast. But this is painfully 80s in the colours, the hairstyles, the pink sky, the fashions. And it's dated quite badly. Yes, I'd agree with that as well. The Rani's costume in particular is just so quintessentially 80s. Massive shoulder pads, big, big hair. I mean, Kate Amara kind of pulls it off, but um, it does really look poor um, against the sort of modern standards of Doctor Who costume. And I think it probably does even against other uh, shows of that era, the other things that were in that season, for example, probably have a slightly more realistic uh, feel to them. And talking of appalling costumes, Kate Amara doing her Mel impersonation for most of episode two was terrible. Oh, no. Really awful. It's a nice idea. And to be fair, Kate gives it all she's got and actually doesn't do a bad job of an impersonation. But I mean, Mel is a pretty obnoxious character to start with and then to double up on the horror, it was an appalling sequence and just seems so pointless and meaningless. I mean, why does she even need to do this? Why not just suck the Doctor's brain into the machine and get the answer that way? The whole thing was contrived and just more bad. I did I did not mind that and I am not one that hates Mel. I I do agree in this one the screaming was way over the top. If you could take out the screaming, uh, I actually often really do enjoy Mel. You know the whole plot about impersonating Mel, it's a little weird, but I'm willing to go there partly because it makes use of her talents with the, uh, you know, mixing up potions and things. She's able to to have some sort of a drug that he takes that emphasizes the uh, amnesia that he's got and I neither love it nor hate it. it. It's okay. I'm willing to go with it. It's, it plays into her talents. I mean, she disguised herself in Mark of the Rani and apparently likes to do that. And um, she has these talents. And I could understand she needed a component to make the machine work properly. And she's trying to trick him into to giving her the answer. So I, I, I was willing to go with that. Yeah, I think Kate Lamar does a fantastic job of ripping off Bonnie Langford. Her impression <laughs> is very, very clever and pretty good as well um considering you know this is a senior stateswoman of of british uh, theatrical life certainly you know somebody who made a name in the u.s as well in dynasty was it dynasty was it the other one i can't remember yeah no i think you're right it was dynasty excellent one of the two um you know somebody who really was uh, a big name star coming in to do doctor who and spending at least an episode of it portraying another character very very accurately whether you think it works or not in terms of the plot it pales in comparison to the uh, cuttingness of the impression for me yes she does a reasonable job it doesn't seem to progress the plot overall and just came over as a gimmick which went on for far too long i think actually that sums up a lot of this story a lot of the actors are doing a good job and a lot of the individual pieces are okay but as an overall production it falls down over and over and over again the other one that comes to mind is the bouncing bomb. They're trying really hard to do something neat and cool and with a bit of high-tech gizmo in there with some special effects. And it just comes over as a bit rubbish and pointless. Why didn't they just put a mine there and blow them to pieces? Why bounce them around like a pinball? Yeah, I like that effect. That I thought that was actually pretty cool. And I love the way they had the, the real explosions as they bounced down around the hillsides. Um, I And recognizing it for 80s technology and you know it would look quite different today but that's in terms of the various things they tried to do as special effects i thought that was probably the most effective 
Way better than the glitter guns. Yes, unfortunately the sequences where Mel is trapped inside the bouncing bomb, for a once of a better name, it's very obvious that the, the disc underneath it is a real physical prop, but the effect of the globe is overlaid digitally afterwards. Um, and for whatever reason, they had to zoom in digitally as well on, on some of that footage afterwards. And you can really see the joins and the creaks of, of what was probably quite new effects at the time, but they're not quite working. They're certainly not convincing you know, for a modern viewer, and they probably weren't that great even at the time. You can definitely see them uh, see the way they were putting those shots together. Um, I did think the model... Uh, effects at the end of episode four where they blew up the layer um, were much more convincing and that's another classic Doctor Who thing and it build your, a model of your layer and then blow it up and that always mm-hmm. seems to go down well. There was actually quite a few pieces of CSO type technology going on which seemed a bit unnecessary and not very well put together. The piece where the Rani goes back to a TARDIS and is um, cutting up this material that was all CSO and there's a couple of scenes in the Tetrap layers where they were CSO'd and it didn't seem necessary to be CSO and just kind of jumped out as, ugh, there's a bad special effect there and it kind of broke into the continuity. Yes, and there are some interesting design choices with parts of the sets as well. Um, the feeding of the Tetraps using a sort of sluice mechanism that can only be released from inside the uh, <laughs> the, the layer. So uh, at what point can the Tetraps not just feed themselves? And Speaking of which, and you talked about padding, Ian, how many times a day do the Tetraps have to be fed? I mean, they must, <laughs> good grief, they're pretty labor intensive in terms of uh, a species that you have to take care of. It must have been three or four times over what looked to me like the span of just a few hours that they had to do a feeding. The Tetraps are an interesting monster. And if you think that they were doing the masks like the Destroyer or the Fenric heads before too much longer, you know, what, another year or two... Um, it is a very static mask. Uh, okay, the eyes work on the main principal tetrap, um, but the jaw is very simple and, and doesn't have any other kind of lip movement or uh, things couldn't actually talk. It doesn't actually have a jaw that would enable it to speak as it's supposed to do in the show. It does have a ring of man in fursuit with head stuck on, um, <laughs> un- unfortunately. There are some nice things about them. The the hands are very good, the sort of claws. And they're interesting concept, as you say, in a, with, the, with the four eyes, the idea of them being able to see and focus in on what, any particular area around them. But they're just not that well used. They might as well be ogrons, really. Here's another drama There's a second Mara But it's not a snake, no This one's Kate O'Mara Bloody big brain in there Is anyone's 
forgets the whole sorry story is a cerebral mess. I blame the bakers. I blame the bakers, yeah. The seventh doctor is no use. He's too busy playing spoons and malappropriating. Men are screaming over there. We set fire to her hair. She needs a But you're not the worst we ever had And thank you, Leeson, for the Tetrap rap. Well, I want to circle back to uh, some of your comments about Kate O'Mara as the Ronnie, because it seems to me like I often hear about the two stories, that you know, the stories weren't particularly good, especially Time and the Ronnie, but people seem to be fascinated with the character of the Ronnie. And while I think the character is a good concept, this kind of uh, amoral renegade Time Lord who is so focused on what she wants to do you know, with her skills that it doesn't really matter what happens to anybody else along the way. I mean, it's a good idea. I'm, I'm just not that fond of the character. And, and I feel a little churlish to say it. I know Kate O'Mara uh, recently passed away, but... I'm not that fond of her portrayal uh, of the way she portrays the Ronnie. Um, the the scowling and the petulance and the pouting, to me, just just great. Um, and presumably, I guess that's the way the character was written. But I I couldn't help thinking as I was watching this, I was thinking about Servalan from Blake Seven, <laughs> who is such a strong female villain who always has poise, who's gorgeous, who even when when she's getting her comeuppance week after week. Um, still managed to hold her poise and her strength. And the Rani just annoys me, uh, in contrast. I don't mind the portrayal too much, although it's not a particularly unique character. I mean, it's basically the master in a skirt, if you'll pardon the phrase. The machinations are the same, the background is the same, the way they go about doing things is often very similar as well. It's not a terrible thing, but it's not exactly new and unique either. I've never really understood the ongoing fascination that fandom has with the Rani, other than, you know, fans' general desperation to try and put continuity links into absolutely everything possible, so that every time a new female character is mentioned in this series, you start hearing the forum post saying, could it be the Rani, could it be the Rani? And I'm certain it will never, ever be the Rani, because why would you? Why would you try and explain the backstory of this character when you could create a new female renegade time lord far more easily and not prompt people to go back and watch time and the rani which you probably don't want your new audience to go back and pick up yeah i mean the rani was in two stories so it's not as even as if she has a massive tv history that people might expect to see her come back into the new series i mean there's potential there i think as with any character there's potential for a really interesting um, and slightly different take on the renegade time lord myth i don't think we really saw that in time and the rani um, i think possibly we did slightly more um, in the mark of the rani but you know it probably wasn't delivered in the second story who, who knows it would be interesting to see what a future writer could do with the character and the way it, where it could be taken um you know, with a bit of a new twist on it. But uh, am I desperate to see her back in a TV show? Well, not unless there's something good and new to say about the character. 
And while we're talking about portrayals of Time Lords, this is obviously Sylvester's first go at the role, and what do we think of how he handled it? I think that there were some missteps, but also some wonderful touches. Um, and like I alluded to earlier, I think the Pratt Falls, in, particularly in episode one, I mean, some of it carries on into the rest of the story and into other episodes, but the falling down the steps and the, and the business with the Ronnie all in episode one, I think was a real mistake, and, and you kind of Again, why, why do something that's going to turn people off the character right off the bat? And, and yet I know that they were trying to make a more a lighthearted contrast to the darkness of the Sixth Doctor, which they were kind of reacting against. But, but as you go on, I think there's some wonderful sweetness to his character. I enjoy the, uh, the misquotes that, that carry through this. I don't know if that carried on, certainly not to the same extent in other stories, but I actually like that part of his character. I like the spoons. I don't mind them at all. Second Doctor had his flute. Uh, you know, Fifth Doctor had his cricket bat. I don't mind that, that the Seventh Doctor would pick up spoons and play them once in a while. What did you do that for? It was your fault. A bad workman always blames his fools. Tools! Blames his tools! Do I detect a hint of bad temper, Mel? And there are some really nice touches. I love the sequence where he and Mel are discovering each other. I mean, they both mm. think they're someone else to begin with, and collectively they, they discover, Mel discovers that her doctor has changed. The doctor discovers that this is the real Mel, and it's just very, very sweet. I know that Sylvester's doctor ends up becoming darker and more manipulative in the future, but there's also, there is, at least at this point, an innocence to him and a sweetness to him. And, um, you know, the last line about, well, I'll grow on you, especially when he's so short. There, I, I just liked a lot about this. I think it is a very uncertain first performance. Now, I don't know whether they did what they often seem to do with uh, Doctors these days, which is to film a later story first to give him a chance to to get into the role and the character a bit it all seems a little bit rushed i don't think the script supports the uh, establishing of the new character of the doctor you can forgive a doctor a lot in his first story because it's post-regeneration and, and you know he can be out of character and a bit up the wall um but i think what he's given to do in the script doesn't help us get to know the doctor the new character of the doctor the trouble with going from dark to light is that the light always then seems superficial and silly. And I think that's uh, what's ha- what happens here. The Pratt Falls, the playing the spoons, they don't seem to come from any dramatic purpose. Um, they just seem there to show a wackiness of the Doctor's character off. And it does get toned down very rapidly in subsequent stories, but it doesn't make it particularly easy to watch during this one. And I'm glad it it does get toned down as the Seventh Doctor progresses. Yeah, and I would even contend that they tone it down within the four episodes of this story. I mean, I think it's particularly egregious during episode one and becomes better for the last three episodes. He's much easier to watch uh, as as we go through it. I'm generally a fan of Sylvester's performance across this whole era. I'm not a big fan of many of his stories. I think he's a Doctor let down by poor scripts more often than not. But him I like, and I've always been a fan of him and the portrayal he brought to it. But as you say in episode one of this, the pratfalls and the spoons and all that stuff is awful. I mean, it's pretty bad to start with, and it's so overdone and overplayed. And you can see the viewers turning away in droves, and it's such a shame. I know a lot of the silliness that he throws in at this stage is not what he wanted. This is not what Sylvester wanted to bring to the role. But he was pushed into that corner by the BBC that, had an agenda for how they wanted to take the show so it's a shame 
But like so many things in this story, it's a victim of the circumstances beyond its control. Yeah, I don't know, because I understand that the script would have had some of the silliness in there. So there was an opportunity to talk about it and discuss it at, that, at the scripting stage. Also, some of the business and things with the spoons and the, some of the physical stuff must have been worked out in rehearsal. So again, there was another opportunity to, to tone it down. To have somebody say, oh, this wasn't the direction that I wanted the character to go in, yet for it to be so obviously areas where he has strength, you know, physical comedy, um, and that you know that was very much uh, Sylvester's background was was around physical comedy. He shoved ferrets down his trousers for years. Um, to say suddenly that wasn't what I wanted to do in this show. Well, maybe the BBC cast him because of his experience in that area. Quite possibly. I mean, there's a fairly long tradition of particularly the female companion, the actress is coming in with this idea that I'm going to be the strong, intelligent character, or I'm going to be the strong, intelligent warrior. And then the scriptwriters basically turn them back into the Dollybird companion again. And there's been more than one Doctor Who actor that's made that complaint. Not usually the Doctors themselves, but it is something that went on quite a lot. Yeah, I suppose that's fair enough. I mean, there is always that pressure, isn't there, to do what you're expected to do rather than what perhaps you want to do. So I was watching... Time and the Rani again, just because I, I tend to watch it once every two or three days just to keep myself um, you know, up to speed with it. Um, <laughs> I, and can somebody tell me why the people who sit around in the centre of leisure, which is not a leisure centre, it's a centre of leisure, why knowing that it has deadly killer electronic bees in the big globe, why don't they just go somewhere else? This is the second time I watched this, and I remembered that from the first time through, wondering why are they hanging out in a place where there's an imminent death threat? And and so I watched it this time, and the first scene that we see them in there, the, the globe is new. So I can forgive them that scene. They probably don't know there are killer bees in there. But why they're in there again when we come back so that they can put on the exploding anklets. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're, ab- you're absolutely right. It's another fail on uh, uh, some part of the production. I don't know. I've never understand why people live in San Francisco when it might have an earthquake at any moment or in Tornado Alley where they could have their house picked up and taken away to Oz. But people do. Yeah, I suppose that's fair <laughs> enough. You, cu- you give them the benefit of the doubt. The dialogue seems to suggest that they don't know that, that it's full of killer electronic bees in the first scene. Yet as soon as they open, there's a piece of uh, what must be dubbed on dialogue that says, look out, they kill. So instantly they're aware of what these things are um, and then people are actually sort of, you know, being killed by buzzing electronic dots on the screen. So my sympathy for them is minimal, I'm afraid. They should just go somewhere else. They've been, they obviously have freedom of movement, so they should go. There must be hundreds of other centres of leisure. Maybe do they go to the market of super to do some <laughs> shopping? Well, it mostly seems to be a, the quarry of gravel, to be honest. So perhaps <laughs> sitting around in a deadly sofa is preferable to hanging around in a damp quarry. Well, on that note, maybe we should transition from one uh, depressing setting to another, and that would be the Divergent Universe. Yes, Ian and I are continuing our voyage to the Divergent Universe on Big Finish Audio with the Eighth Doctor and Charlie. And uh, this week's review is The Natural History of Fear. Big Finish with Ian and Michelle from across the Atlantic Ocean. Ian from the UK and Michelle from the United States. Reviewing Big Finish. Sorting out the wheat from the chaff and nonsense, saving you money on the ones that are not so good. In the natural history of fear, 
The doctor and his friends find themselves in the totalitarian light city where it's against the law to ask questions or even to wonder. This is the voice of Light City. Welcome to your new workday. Today is high productivity day. Your state loves you. So this is the third of the Divergent Universe stories, and again, we're not quite sure how they came to be in this city. They've already become part of the population of Light City, and don't seem to remember who and what they are anymore. There's clearly a really strong kind of Big Brother vibe going on here of a, of a dystopian future. The sheer draconian level of this is unusual, even by the standards of these stories. And there's also, as is kind of a trope for these things, the heavy media censorship and the, the role of the editor that is creating these info pieces that are, that are put out to the, to the population. I found myself really drawn in by this. As you say, right from the start, the doctor and his friends are not acting like themselves. The doctor, in in fact, is the editor who is almost the top of the hierarchy of control in this society. And and indeed, if you step out of line, they send the conscience in after you. The conscience was Kara's. And uh, if you have indeed committed a, a, a word crime or, or used an unauthorized interrogative preposition, then you get wiped. You get uh, revised, as they say. You get sent for revision, and, and they totally change your life, take away your personality, and assign you a new one. Along with the unsettling question of, are our heroes truly brainwashed, or are they playing along, looking for an opportunity to make things right? I found that a fairly effective quandary. The point you mentioned where the, if you break any rule at all, you get revised and turned into another personality, is where I started to have a problem with this story. We start out with our main lead characters not playing themselves. It's already quite unsettling and I find difficult to to get to grips with, especially when the Doctor is being quite evil, to be honest with you, in in some respects. Session one, post-Meridian, the subject, a female prole, has asked her first question. Self-orientation query typical of standard ego in pre-revision realisation phase. Questions are bad for the common good. Questions lead to answers. Answers lead to knowledge. Knowledge leads to freedom. Freedom leads to dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction leads to unhappiness. The state wants you to be happy. And then they keep changing. They actually keep getting their new characters. I began to lose some of the thread of what was going on with the individual characters. There was also, within this idea of there being recordings and editing, there was what was quite a neat little audio trick, that at the end of many scenes, you suddenly have the audio equivalent of panning out to realise that the last scene you heard was a recording that somebody else was listening to. And there's kind of an inception quality to the sort of scenes within scenes. But then they keep repeating it. You would listen to one scene and then realise it was actually a recording and people were discussing it. And then that scene would turn out to be a recording. And then that scene would turn out to be a recording. Shells within shells within shells. And while it's a nice idea, I ended up becoming hopelessly confused as to exactly what was going on in any given moment. This idea of listening in on each other and what's real and what is a facade 
is even played in kind of a meta sense because within this story there are infotainments that the population is forced to watch, and those infotainments are actually excerpts from the adventures that the Doctor has had with Charlie. Here you will find Axon's file under A and Zabi file under Z. How interesting. Oh, yes. There are eight basic hero types. Cross-referencing for companions and villains is straightforward. There are discussions about missing episodes from those infotainments and unmade adventures, unmade stories. And there's even a a kind of a revolutionary restoration team that's sort of lurking in the background. Even in the darkness of this story, there's sort of this layer of fun in looking at the Doctor Who universe. And maybe that helped, helped for me, keep it from going too, too dark. But but you're right. This is this was a fairly unsettling, another off-kilter kind of story in this divergent universe. Ultimately, I got bored with it. It had got so complicated that you needed something pretty spectacular to try and even begin to explain it. And to be fair, they do go really quite left field in terms of the resolution. I enjoyed it right up until the last two minutes, where I had really been looking forward to perhaps a more traditional resolution. Uh, I thought it was a bit of a cheat. But, uh, you know, as they say in the story, happiness through acceptance. You know, I have to say, I'm getting quite concerned at the moment because every week on the Doctor Who podcast recently, I've been miserable about something. I was miserable about Tenth Planet. I was very miserable about Logopolis. Everyone is miserable about Tom and the Rani. And now I'm being miserable about the Divergent Universe in Big Finish as well. So we need to set a challenge to find something I like in the near future before everyone thinks I'm just Mr. Grumpy. Well, (laughs) actually, we do have something to look forward to next week that hopefully not everybody will think is miserable. And as I recall, I didn't think everything in the Divergent Universe was miserable, nor did I think Time and the Ronnie was completely miserable. So so take that, Ian. Um, But we have of course, been uh, exploring our way through the regeneration stories here on the main podcast. And we've ticked off a few of them, but we have some more to to go. We asked you listeners what your opinions were about uh, what we should be reviewing. And uh, boy, either of you guys know which one made it to the top of the list for next week? Was it 10th Planet again? (laughs) (laughs) It's always time to review 10th Planet again. Um, Rumor has it that it is John Pertwee's final story planet of the spiders i think on this case on the doctor who podcast the rumor is true yes next week uh we'll be looking at planet of the spiders and i think that one ranks a little bit higher than time and the rani in people's opinions if i'm not wrong it's a pretty good guess it's pretty much everything ranks higher than time and the rani in most people's (laughs) opinions but yes it has a significantly better reputation and in fact bizarrely is a story i've never actually watched so I'm looking forward to finding out what this story is all about and hopefully finding it a bit more positive than the three we've done to date. You just said you've never watched it. You've never seen Planet of the Spiders. I have never seen Planet of the Spiders, no. Wow. I'll hand in my fan card right now and go home. (laughs) Well, this will give you a chance. You can't leave these, these regeneration stories unwatched. Now, it's important to go through them all every so often, even Time and the Ronnie. Hey, fellas, it's been great <laughs> chatting with you. Thank you for bearing with me to, to go through Time and the Ronnie. Until next time, then, bye-bye. See you then. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Doctor Who podcast, brought to you this week by Michelle, Tony, and Ian. This week, they were discussing Time and the Ronnie, a story so bad, so terrible, it makes Kate O'Mara's stint in Dynasty look Oscar-worthy. 
you can find more episodes of the show, which have much, much less time on the Rani content, on the thedoctorwhopodcast.com. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, where there'll be no time on the Rani discussion, or drop by the Doctor Who podcast forums and convince Michelle, Tony and Ian never to speak of this story again. Time on the Rani, guys. What were you thinking? As a famous podcaster once said, put it in a box and bury it. Thanks for listening. See you later.